invite you this morning to open your Bibles with me to do 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, I hope that uh, when you come to church that you bring your Bible. I'm a little old school. I, I, uh, I just, uh, I know a lot of you read the text on your cell phones, um, but I still, something special about bringing your sword, bringing the Bible with you to worship. We're going to look at a text this morning that has to deal with money. And I will just say this to you on the front end. Uh, this text has really convicted me this week, and I don't have time to go into all the details. But I want to propose to you that we as American Christians have messed up ideas about money. And most of our ideas about money and finances are not governed by Scripture. There's this American dream, money, investing, saving, wealth, hoarding things up, pensions, retirements, all retirement, none of that is in the Bible. None of it. Saving, certainly some investing, but not, not what we think as American Christians, and it's a problem. And so I invite you this morning to 1 Timothy 6. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's just provided some instruction to different groups in the church. In chapter 5, we, he provides some instruction to elders, those who are to lead the flock, then to widows, to slaves, to employees. And then he comes back to this issue of false teaching. And in chapter 6, learn that these false teachers had drifted from sound doctrine. Their doctrine, their teaching had divided the church. You see that in verses 4 and 5. And it's obvious that these false teachers were greedy for money, a sin of avarice. And if you remember in 1 Timothy 3, when Paul is giving character qualities for those who lead the church, it says they were not to be greedy for money. The King James translates it. I really love that. They're not greedy for filthy lucre. I just, that filthy lucre, I don't, just is a great translation of that. And these false teachers were lovers of money, and they had distorted the doctrine of godliness that you'll see in verse 5. Do you see that, 1 Timothy 6, 5? It says, godliness is a mean of gain. They had distorted that to mean financial gain, that godliness, godly living is the key to financial gain, that God will make you rich. The basis for such teaching has no real interest in God, no real interest in his glory and his honor, no sense of humility for us where we would die to self in order to live a godly life to please him. Rather, the appeal for godly living, think about this, is a means of using God. Live a godly life, and then this genie in a bottle, this God, will give you everything you want. Godliness is a mean of gain, financial gain. And it's really about self-interest. And those who preach and teach this kind of stuff today have watered the gospel down. It's not the gospel. It's a false gospel. And it's man-centered instead of God-centered. These false teachers were motivated, evidently trying to motivate others as well. Come to Christ. Live a godly life with an expectation that God will make you wealthy. That was their message. It was kind of a marketing strategy. I mean, after all, who doesn't want to have more money? 
Sound familiar? It's going on today. Those who distort the Bible and pull verses out of context. You, you hear infomercials, something like this. My brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord for whatever you sow, you shall reap. And if you want to reap a financial harvest, then faith demands that you sow a seed. My brothers and sisters, are you tired living off the crumbs? Are you tired of anxiety from one paycheck to the next? Then it's time to walk by faith. Send me whatever you can, $10, $25, $100, praise God. Sow that seed in faith and it'll spring up. Jesus said those who sow the seed will yield a harvest, some 100-fold, some 60-fold, some 30-fold. Don't let the enemy lie to you. Sow in faith. Sow today. Make that phone call. Our operators are standing by. Sound familiar? Using scripture. Everything that I said you'll find in the Bible. Except maybe our operators are standing by. <laughs> the motivation for you and I giving to get money is nowhere found in Scripture. That kind of infomercial preys on gullible Christians who are ignorant of the true gospel. Kenneth Copeland, in his Laws of Prosperity, wrote Do you want a hundredfold return on your money? Then give and let God multiply it back to you. No bank in the world offers this kind of return, praise the Lord. And he has a net worth of $760 million. Olstein would laugh with approval regarding Charles Fillmore's translation of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my banker, therefore my credit is good. This was actually a quote from a sermon the priest on this issue. This thing is not new. History has been full of men who have tried to commercialize religion. However, the apostle Paul was clear that he never peddled God's word for profit. He never coveted any person's silver, gold, or clothing. He never used the gospel as a cloak for greed. In fact, Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, anyone who perverts or distorts the gospel like this, let that person be anathema. Let that person be accursed, which means damned, condemned. And if you'll notice in our text in 1 Timothy 6, 5, Paul exhorts Timothy and the entire congregation to withdraw from those who preach and teach such things. Withdraw from them. It's garbage. It's not gospel. And thinking about Andy and Michelle Milam this morning, uh, this kind of gospel is what's being saturated by a lot of groups to the nations, appealing to those in third world countries who are poor. It's marketing, it's very appealing. Paul instructs Timothy, if you have your, if your Bible, if you see in verse two, before we're gonna get in this text, Paul instructs Timothy, he says, in verse two, teach and urge these things. What things? Everything that he's written before this and everything that he's about to provide. Everything before and ever. It's a way to combat 
this kind of false teaching, to expose false teachers, to protect the church, and to unify the church. And so with that, read with me 1 Timothy 6, starting verse 6, as we consider this great discipleship lesson on money. Verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Verse 17. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Isn't that a great promise? Trust in God, in the living God, who gives us, who provides for us richly all things to enjoy. Referring to those who were wealthy, verse 18, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. I invite you to pray with me. Father, you're the true living God, and while there are many faiths and many different religions, you are the only true and living God. There's no one else but you. And because of your grace and your mercy, you've chosen to reveal yourself to us fully the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're thankful today for the living word that you've given to us, the written word. And Father, we want to see you today. We need to see you. We want to hear you. We need to hear you, and God, we want our wills to be pliable to serve you according with Scripture. And so we pray for your spirit to bear witness with us and speak to us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not a really a good feeling to be driving in the right lane and then to check both rearview mirrors and maybe the rear mirror and put your signal on, the blinker, and Seeing that the left lane is open, you begin to ease over, startled to hear a horn, and so you quickly swerve back over and try to catch your breath. Been there? It's called a blind spot. A blind spot. Lots of accidents have occurred because drivers do not take that extra, just less than a second, just that little shoulder glance to make sure there's nothing in the blind spot. Part of our sinful nature instinctively chooses to see what we want to see and to ignore what we want to ignore until it's too late and the damage is done. In this text, 
The Apostle Paul shines a light in one of our glaring sins. He points out a blind spot. And that blind spot is how the American church, the American Christians, how we view and how we handle money. The false teaching that was being purported from that church was live a godly life and God will provide great financial gain. That's what was being proposed by the false teachers. And again, to combat that, Paul tells Timothy, teach and urge these things. Everything that he said before about the gospel, everything that he's going to say about finances. And Timothy, raise up disciples in the church who understand the truth about money. And so this text is not, it's not exhaustive for the Bible has a lot more to say about finances than just this text, but it's a pretty good discipleship lesson on money, how to view it and how to use it. And so in verse 6, there is a financial philosophy. I would propose to you it's a Christian philosophy for life, a foundation on which everything else rests, a mindset, a perspective, an attitude that corrects what the false teaching had been. In verse 6, Paul says two things. You see it? He says, godliness and contentment, those two things, are of great gain. Not financial gain. That's, that's distorted. That's twisted. Godliness and contentment are of great gain, great spiritual gain. Think about those two things, godliness and contentment. What is godliness? Well, you remember back in chapter 4, verses 7 8, Paul says to Timothy, hey, exercise yourself unto godliness. That word godliness is from a word which means to be reverent or to be like God. So Timothy, work at living a godly life. It is profitable. It brings forth benefits, he says in chapter 4, both now and for eternity, and teach others to do the same thing. Told young people this for years. I don't remember when I first came up with it, but the most important muscle in your body is not your biceps or some kind of large muscle in your legs. The most important muscle that you have is between your ears. And the more you learn to work and exercise that muscle, the better off you'll be in life. What does that have to do with godly living? Well, do you remember after Paul instructs Timothy to discipline yourself unto godliness? In verse 6 of chapter 4, he tells him how. He says, here's how to do it. Nourish your mind with sound doctrine. Nourish your mind with the words of truth. In other words, feast, dig in, eat, take in the word, ingest it to live a godly life. Feed on God's word, and then Timothy, exhort others to do likewise. Godliness. And then he adds contentment. What is contentment? Contentment is being satisfied. It's being satisfied with what I have, not seeking more. Being content with what I have, trusting that what I have is what God has provided. Look at verse 8. Being content, he says, with food and clothing, I could just pause here for a minute. How many of us are content 
and would be content if we just had food and clothing. How many of you could jump to your feet and give testimony that that describes you? It's all I want, really. It's all I'm really concerned about is food and clothing. You see, contentment must be an attitude in us that is produced by God. To the Corinthians, Paul says, we are not adequate in and of ourselves, nor does any adequacy come from ourselves, but our adequacy comes from God, which means whatever God provides is sufficient. It's all we need. To the Philippians, Paul provides testimony about contentment. He says, I have learned to be content. In whatever circumstances I find myself in, I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to be abased and I to go without, but I also know how to live in prosperity and in abundance. And in every and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being fulfilled and also going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is saying it's, it's okay with me either way. I'm going to live a godly life and trust him to produce contentment with me because he's my source. He's all I need. It means if you pursue a godly life and you learn to be content, the outcome is great gain. What's the gain? Well, the gain is a life that you live that pleases God and finds satisfaction in him, a life with purpose and peace. Do you, do you realize how many people today who are who are struggling, they have no peace, they have no purpose, they're floundering around in life, trying to find something to cope, find a, trying to find some kind of meaning and purpose, and they just go from one disaster to the other, or even those who might, when you see them, might appear to be successful, but deep down they're empty and they're still striving and striving. There's no peace with God, no satisfaction in life. There's a quote that I came across, and I, I think I'll remember it the rest of my life. The richest person in the world is the one who doesn't need anything else. I don't need anything else. Verse 5 says, this is gain. This is the philosophy. It was never intended to be twisted and turned into a, a financial investment philosophy. Never intended to bring forth wealth. In fact, the Bible says the opposite, that those who are rich, those who are wealthy are going to find it difficult to please God. The Bible says that. Jesus declared to the man who was never content, who kept acquiring more and more wealth and kept saving it up and hoarding it up and building more barns and bigger barns and newer ones and better ones and kept investing, investing, and investing and laying it all aside, Jesus called him a fool. With no thought about others and with no thought about his soul, do you think that Luke 12, that parable, has relevance to our culture? In essence, prosperity gospel preachers are peddling the very message that Jesus warns us about. Is there anything wrong with wealth in and of itself? Not at all. In fact, verse 10 doesn't say there's anything wrong with money. 
The problem is, is those who want it and crave it expect to keep it and get angry with a God who takes it or commands us to give it away. So the danger is that of the heart, of setting the heart upon money and wealth and prosperity. Because if the human heart is set upon money, Jesus said it's impossible for that same person to serve God. Do you remember? In this life, no one can serve two masters. For you'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. For wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And so you cannot serve God and mammon money. Jesus warned it will be harder for a rich, wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. That sounds pretty impossible, doesn't it? And what is impossible for a camel or what's impossible for a man, if you read the rest of what Jesus said, he says is possible with God, which means God can change the heart. God can change the heart. Would you say that that is your life's philosophy? My aim in life more than anything else is to live a godly life and to be content in Christ. Period. To live a godly life and to be content in Christ. I want to challenge you to adopt that attitude. And it's not natural. It is not natural. It's going to require, require prayer and it's going to ask, require you to ask God to make some changes in my heart. God, I want to please you. I want to learn to be content. That's the philosophy. Look at the commentary in verse 10 that supports it. Why should this be the philosophy of Christian? He says, hear why. For we brought nothing into the world, and it's pretty certain we're not going to take anything out. Job said that, right? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job 1.21. Go back to the rich man in Luke 12. With all of the money he had acquired, all of the wealth, with all the investments and all of the other and all of the land and accumulating great, a great wealth, living the good life, the retired life with ease, Jesus called him a fool. Why? He says, because when he dies, he can't take any of it with him. A certainty point is, why not do something with it now? Why not do something with it now? Why not use it for kingdom purposes before it's too late? To use what God gives to us to help the poor and to advance the gospel. There's some warnings here, two warnings. And uh, this is kind of, kind of difficult, kind of challenging. In verses 8 through 10, there's a warning to those who, who don't have wealth. And then in verses 17 through 19, there's a warning to those who have wealth. Two warnings, those with and those without. But as I was reading this and thinking about this, for our purposes, it's kind of relative. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, it's kind of hard to to determine which category you and I fit into. You say, what, what do you mean? There are 7 billion people on the planet today. 1 billion of the people on the planet live on less than a dollar a day. There's another 2 billion on the planet who live 
on less than $2 a day, which means almost half of the world's population is struggling, is fighting daily for food and shelter and medicine for the same amount of money that we spend on a can of soda at lunch. Now, when I think about that, while I might not classify myself as rich, when I think about the rest of the world, it puts me into that category. All of us here this morning are rich. Do you realize if you earn $25,000 a year or more, you are in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest people? So when you look at these two warnings to these two groups, while most of us wouldn't classify ourselves as rich, it's kind of difficult to determine which category we fit into. I know which way I'm leaning. (laughs) So let's look at these warnings. Look at verse 9 and 10. To those without much money. The context is do not crave money. Do not crave stuff and materialism. Instead, the idea here is to crave God, to seek and long for him. He is our source. By the way, i just throw this out. All of us struggle with different sins. All of us are tempted with different sins. Do you know that the solution to overcome that temptation is not to focus on the sin. The, te- the key to overcoming it is to focus on God and say, God, I, I long for you. I want to crave you and long for you and live for you and live this godly life. And the sin will begin to lose its power. Money, stuff, things that we have are not inherently bad, right? Look at verse 10. They're not evil. What's evil is loving it. And so as Christians, the application is be on guard against craving money and craving stuff that leads to the desire for the next gadget, the newest gadget, nicer clothes, nicer house, nicer furniture, newer car, on and on and on and on. It's a real issue. It's a blind spot for us, perpetuating the enemy's deception that we will find gain satisfaction in stuff. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And let me just say as I was reading, I just said this thought. I don't, I don't know how God might be speaking to you today and how God would want you to apply any of this that we're looking at. That's between you and God. But I know this. Every new car we buy, if you, you just drive somewhere, go down Highway 30 and pick out one of those junkyards and go drive through it, just walk through it. That's where your car is going to be in a few years. And you go down, down to New Albany and look at some of these fine old homes that in their day, they were the, the premier homes of the day. And many of them now today are falling apart, disrepair, moth and rust and corrosion. It's all temporary. All temporary, but but for we as Christians, we just enamored with advertising and marketing and 
trying to keep up with everyone else, and so we fall into it, and we buy, and we buy, and we buy, and we go into debt, and into debt, and into debt, and we have no freedom to respond to the Holy Spirit as God might call us to give. And we're worried about leaving stuff to our kids. Big chunks of money, big inheritances. I didn't get anything. My, my dad died a few years. I didn't get anything. And when you all know, I don't think I'm going to get any much, anything when my mother dies. Most of our kids don't need the big chunks of things that we're working to leave them anyways. Probably would mess them up and make their life worse. But we acquire, we acquire, and we build, and we buy, and we purchase. Don't miss that last statement in Matthew 6. For where your money is, there your heart will be also. Your attitude towards money indicates the spiritual condition of your heart. And one has to be first, either that or God. We, we view money as a blessing, don't we, right? Sure we do. And in many ways it is. It is a blessing. But the Bible teaches that money is also a barrier to God. It's a barrier to eternal life. Consider Paul's counsel. Look at verse 9. He says, money is deceptive. Those who desire for money, what? Fall into a temptation, fall into a trap. They pursue it like drinking salt water. If you're in a little rubber tube, you're floating around in the ocean, and the sun was pressing down on you, day after day, what would be your temptation? Your desire is to see all this water, and I'm parched, dying of thirst, and so you scoop up and drink, and it's full of salt, and the more you drink, the thirstier you become, and the more you drink, the more dehydrated you become, just hastening your death. Money and possessions have the same effect on us. It all looks so desirable, and if we begin pursuing it, it can destroy our souls. Money is not only deceptive, it's dangerous. Verse 9 says, it leads to senseless and harmful desires and puts people into, or into foolish and harmful lusts. Think about how many people's lives are ruined because of a desire for money. Cheating, fraud, perjury, robbery, envy, quarreling, hatred, violence, even murder. All for a love of money. Materialism is a breeding ground for thousands of other sins. And I don't believe any of us here this morning are immune to it. In the Old Testament, you remember Achan and his family were put to death by God because of craving possessions. Solomon, despite his great wisdom, was tempted and led astray, not just for his love of women, but also because of his love of money. In the New Testament, Jesus warned, it'll be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. James says in chapter 5, come now, you who are rich, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is ruined and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your silver and gold are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Love of money and stuff is deceptive, it's dangerous, and ultimately it's damning. It's naming, look at verse 9, it plunges people into ruin, destruction, and perdition. Plunge means to sink or to drown in it. Eternal ruin. Steve Jobs and all of his billions 
will not take one penny into eternity. And none of what he has will prevent the end of his life. Hebrews 9, 27 says there's an appointment that every one of us are going to keep, and that's to die and face judgment. Pastorally, I would urge you this morning to run, to run from the love of money, and instead to run to the love of God. That's the message. Run to Christ. Run to him and find contentment and peace in him. That's the first warning. The second warning is to those who have. Notice three things he says in verse 17 through 19. If you have, if God has entrusted you with great wealth, and evidently he considers you to be trustworthy that he could put that much responsibility upon you, he says, if he has, first, do not be haughty. Don't be arrogant with what God entrusts. You know what that means is make sure that God, that you don't do anything to come across to another person that somehow you think because God has blessed you and your wealth that somehow you're better than they are. And second, do not put your trust and your confidence in it. You see that verse 17? Do not, do not put your trust, your confidence in money. Verse 17, why? Because it's all uncertain. It, all can, it can all be lost. It can all disappear. Think about 2008. Some who have a little money set aside, maybe a little money in a pension, what happened? Two-thirds was lost. Think about this past year. I got a, I got a little bit. I mean, it's in the tank. It's in the toilet. <laughs> right? Just, just being blunt. We think we put something in the bank or we got this or that, it's all, it, it, it is not trustworthy. It can all be lost and I could provide you all kinds of scenarios today how God is in control of our country and if he wanted to within a couple months, couple, couple months of just withholding rain and doing some other things, he would, he would bring this entire country to our knees financially and it would all be gone. Don't trust in it. And have you, have you ever stopped to think about, too, ever, all the stuff and that we acquire and we possess, it really possesses us. You go buy that new boat, what's, what's going to happen? You got to use it. And so you've got to get a truck to pull it or a new SUV to pull it. And so you get spend on the pull it. And then you got to buy the gas to pay for it to get to the lake. And then you have a dog fee and maintenance fee and the engine won't start up. And you got to get it. Everything we buy that we want ends up owning us. What's the antidote? He says in verse 17, place your trust in the living God. And the promise is in verse 17, place your trust in the living God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. James, sounds like James, right? James 1, every good and every good gift that we have is from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of change with him. He is faithful. That means every good blessing, everything we have is from God and he is faithful. That's what that means. Don't be haughty. Don't put your trust in it. And third, verse 18, give sacrificially. Learn to give. Learn 
to give, grow in the grace of giving. Be, what does he say in verse 18? Be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share both time and money. And the motivation is found in verse 19, establishing a foundation for living for the life that's to come for eternity. What's the application? The application is live a godly life and he will produce contentment in us. And you, you, you may not have ever thought about this before, but I would, I would urge you to think about what does it look like to live a simple lifestyle? Simple is hard. What would it look like to live a simple lifestyle, especially financially? Sure, save some. Proverbs, the Bible's full of teaching about saving. Sure, the Bible has things to say about investing. But to live a simple lifestyle as a child of God and to grow in the grace of giving, fight against living above a determined lifestyle and learn to give. Lay, laying up treasure in heaven. I wonder what that would look like. Do you have a blind spot this morning when it comes to money? I think it's a problem for us as American Christians. I think it's a problem for our churches and we don't see it or we don't want to see it. You see, if we don't prize God over our possessions, we will never be passionate about preaching the gospel because one will be first. The Bible says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. The good news of the gospel is described in terms of riches and poverty. Jesus became poor, taking our sins upon himself. Why? So that we might become rich in his righteousness. And so the message is, if God became poor, so that we might become rich if we were repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are rich. There's great gain. The richest people in the world are those who don't need anything else. Satisfied with Jesus. Our sufficiency is in him. He is our source. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Another translation could be, the Lord is my shepherd. He's all I need. My sufficiency is in him. He is my source. A materialistic world will never be won to Christ by a materialistic church. How can we show that Christ saves and satisfies when we find satisfaction in our money and stuff? And how can we reach the lost and the nations of the world when we're spending the majority of God's money on ourselves? Because the fact is those who love money don't give it away or they do it in a very miserly way. I'll close with this. Some of you are familiar with John Wesley, Methodist pastor, missionary, who made a commitment to live a simple life and over the years of working and ministry, his income began to increase, but he vowed an increase in income would not result an increase in the standard of living, but an increased standard of giving. 
And at the final stage of his life, he was earning 1,400 pounds a year, and he was living on 30 pounds, the same amount that he started with 60 years earlier. You do the math. 1,400 pounds, 1,400 living on 30 pounds. What, what, what happened to the rest of it? He gave it all away every year. You translate that, it means he lived on 2% and he gave away 98. And I quote, he was afraid of leaving any treasure on earth. Do you have a blind spot? Where is your heart? Is it set upon God or money? Which of the two would be the greatest longing of your life? To live a godly life, to please him, to find satisfaction in him, and to live a life of contentment where I don't need anything else? Or would it be for the next dollar? Is the Lord Jesus Christ your treasure? Your treasure. And perhaps God this morning is calling all of us to treasure him more, to be more content in him. This morning is done and the musicians come to lead us and open the altar for prayer. And If you need to come this morning, just bow in prayer before the Lord and cry out to him and just to be honest and say, God, I need you to change my heart. Change my heart. Then I invite you to come. Let me pray with you.